If I had to choose one word to describe the times that we have been living through, one word to characterize what has happened in our generation, this generation, I vote for the word apocalypto or apocalypsis. It's a word, Greek word, that means revelation or revealing. It has been a time of revealing, hasn't it, over the past couple of decades in evangelicalism and really culminated just recently in the past couple of years. If I were to name names for you, big celebrity names, conference speakers, those who you know are no longer regarded because they have fallen, their lives have been exposed and they're no longer regarded. You all know what I'm referring to. If I refer to institutions, speak about Big Eva, big evangelicalism, institutions of evangelicalism that are no longer faithful, where there has been mission drift, true mission drift. You all know what I'm saying about that. We've all seen the memes. Open your church, sermon gate, by what standard? We found Billy. These are all memes that represent a certain amount of decline in our time. Even among the more conservative, reformed evangelical leaders, many that we've counted as friends, we have rejoiced that they've been vocal about getting the gospel right. We praise God for that. But we have been saddened recently that they've been virtually silent about the battles that real Christians are actually engaged in. The hills that Pastor Billy is being faithful to die on. Men like James Coates and others in Canada. So what's happened? What is the problem? Why are so many once trusted, usually crystal clear voices of leadership failing this generation in a desperate time of need? Well, if you have your Bibles with you and you turn to Luke chapter 12, I think we'll discover there in the words of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, one of the most insidious and pernicious influences that has afflicted evangelicalism for decades, and it's finally being revealed and identified and exposed. Jesus diagnoses in this text the sinister disease, and he also points us to the remedy. As Tom said in the last session, this conference is called Militant and Triumphant. Quick word about the militant part. I think for far too long, evangelical pastors and leaders have operated with a peacetime mentality. They have enjoyed the comfort and the tolerance and the favor of a relatively benign culture around us. Those days are gone and they're not coming back anytime soon. So it's time to go to the wall and to those boxes that are labeled break glass in time of war and let all those kinds of pastors outside of the box. They might not always look comfortable in a suit. In fact, they might have dirty spots on their knees and their elbows from being knocked down or spending much time in prayer. They might not always come from the right schools have enough letters after their names, might not check all the PC boxes, might not nuance their language and their speech well enough, but there is one singular qualification that they have in their favor, 
It's the one virtue that Jesus identifies in this text. They fear God. They are God-fearing men. Take a look at Luke 12, 1 through 5. I'll just read this. I'm reading out of the CSB translation. In these circumstances, a crowd of many thousands came together so that they were trampling on one another. He began to say to his disciples first, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There is nothing covered that won't be uncovered, nothing hidden that won't be made known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in an ear in private rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. And I say to you, my friends, don't fear those who kill the body and after that can do nothing more, but I will show you the one to fear. Fear him who has authority to throw people into hell after death. Yes, I say to you, this is the one to fear. If you like to take notes, here's a first point. I've got two points. First point for today, fear God to live without hypocrisy. Fear God to live without hypocrisy. We see that Luke sets the scene in verse one saying, in these circumstances, then he speaks of a crowd of many thousands that were gathering together, coming together, and they were so thick that they were trampling on one another. There's a lot packed into that introduction that Luke gives us, but let me summarize what's behind it all. Back in Luke 11:37, one of the Pharisees had asked Jesus to come over and dine at his house for a meal. Jesus accepted that invitation, but he didn't accept the hypocrisy that went along with it. He didn't accept the hypocrisy of making a show of religion right before the meal. Traditional purification rituals the Pharisees had practiced before eating, he didn't take part in that. Noticing the astonishment of his host, Jesus spoke to the man with great tact. He was careful to nuance his words so as not to give offense. He was speaking softly and carefully in his tone, and he responded in verse 39 saying, now you Pharisees, you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're full of greed and evil. Fools, didn't he who make the outside make the inside too? You see how carefully he nuanced that? (laughs) Jesus didn't care about being invited back His abiding concern, obviously, is to tell the truth and also to practice the truth. So there's a consistency between what he says and what he does. We call that integrity. We call that Christianity. To convey the level of concern that Jesus had about the Pharisees' spiritual condition, he pronounced woes on them for their hypocrisy until verse four, from that point until verse 44. Evidently, he didn't nuance his words carefully enough. So in verse 45, one of the experts in the law answered him and said, teacher, when you say these things, be careful, because you insult us too by painting with such a broad brush. He probably had, probably accidentally, they assumed the best of this rabbi, But he'd gone too far in his critique. He broad-brushed them. 
crossed over into territory of the academy. He, he was started to opine on things that they had already settled in their schools. So Jesus turned to them. Oh, you want some? You want some too? Verse 46, woe also to you experts in the law. You load people down with burdens that are hard to carry and yet you yourselves, you don't touch those burdens with one of your fingers. Make no mistake, folks, we've got Pharisees among us today. Those who wield power and influence over many, many Christians among popular evangelicalism. We've got scribes among us today as well, experts in the law. They walk the hallowed halls of the evangelical academy, and when they approximate that kind of behavior, woe to them as well. They criticize pastors who are fighting to keep their churches open. They chastise churches for not loving their neighbors, when that's exactly what an open church is, is love to neighbor, love to the community. Every community with a faithful church is blessed by God. Those communities are blessed by God with a church that is truly loving to their neighbors. These Pharisees, these scribes, modern day, they criticize churches that speak loudly about sexual immorality. They condemn churches that are trying to rescue enslaved souls out of the defilement of their sexual sin. They criticize pastors who are working very hard, long hours in preaching and teaching and then in the office to counsel and to plead and to pray and to work hard to free consciences from sin. They work hard to free people from the tyranny of Caesar They tried to replace the heavy yoke of the state for the easy yoke of Christ. They want to tie everybody's consciences to the one who is gentle and lowly in heart that they might find rest for their souls. The woes of Christ rightly fall on such men, modern-day Pharisees, modern-day backed up by the scholarship of modern-day scribes, and God will judge their words and their ministries. Well, this Pharisee and the rest of his dinner guests, they didn't take it well. Luke 11.53, you can read it there. It says, when he left there, the scribes and the Pharisees had begun to oppose him, oppose him fiercely and to cross-examine him about many things. They're lying in wait for him to trap him in something he said. Oh, man, it's on. It is on. They are hunting him down. Jesus had just ripped off their masks. He showed these men for what they really are. The heart that they tried to hide behind a a veneer of religious hypocrisy, that heart has revealed itself here. Its murderous hostility is exposed. We know where this goes. It goes to the cross when they nail him to it. The crowds knew it was on too. That's why they're there. Word got out, out of that dinner party. You You can just hear the servants whispering to one another and the word gets out on the street and they, get, they, they, they tell the word out through the town and everybody knows what's going on. Jesus had just bested the Pharisees and the scribes. That drew all these thousands and most are coming because they want to see the show. They're drawn to the controversy like moths to a flame. I want to see Jesus go at it with religious leaders. We know from John 2, 24, 25, Jesus is not fooled by the heart. 
He's not fooled by mere enthusiasm, popular enthusiasm, but he does find a teaching moment here. In the presence of the crowd with mixed motives, in the presence of his enemies, Pharisees, scribes, leaders who are trying to entrap and discredit him, it says in these circumstances, Luke tells us, Jesus taught his disciples. He said, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. I'm not a baker, so I had to look this up, how yeast works, how leaven works. It's fascinating. Yeast or leaven, it's a single-celled, sugar-eating fungi. Did you know that when you eat bread? It's a fungi. Individual fungi cells, they're tiny. It takes 20 billion of these to equal one gram of yeast. Yeast acts in this way, it eats sugar. And when it digests that sugar, the byproduct of eating that sugar is carbon dioxide gas and ethyl alcohol. The ethyl alcohol, working through the yeast in the bread dough, it makes that bread dough ferment. And then the carbon dioxide gases that are unable to escape the elastic fermented dough, the gases create pockets of bubbles in the bread dough. We say the dough, the bread is rising. Literally, it's just puffed up. It's bloated with fungus gas. <laughs> if you're craving a sandwich right now, that is a little weird. <laughs> Sourdough, maybe? But what an apt picture of hypocrisy. The sin of hypocrisy, right? The sin of hypocrisy, most fundamentally, hypocrisy is a violation of the commandment to not bear false witness about yourself to others. Hypocrisy consists in a thousand little compromises, invisible to the naked eye, invisible to the exterior. It's working in the heart. The sin of hypocrisy is greedily devouring sugary words of flattery. It loves to gobble up the praises of men the byproduct of digesting all that flattery, all that praise, well, that person becomes bloated, puffed up. Their ministry becomes ineffectual because it's not solid, it's not sound, it's not strong, it's got way too much gas in it. Paul reminds us in Galatians 5 verse 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. Just takes a little bit of hypocrisy among leaders. Just a little. Whether secular, I just made up a new word there, trying to save time, (laughs) secular or religious leaders, whether leaders of the state or leaders in the church, they've got interests to protect. They've got money to protect, reputation, power, influence. And that is a huge temptation for evangelical institutional leaders. They desire to capture audiences, to gain influence. That turns into maintaining influence, often through subtle compromises and pragmatic means. That turns into protecting that influence that they've built up and maintained, trying to please audiences to keep them coming, pleasing donors to keep them giving. Eventually, the hypocrisy of leaders infects the whole institution. 
Institutional leaders live in an echo chamber of self-promotion, self-reinforcing ideas get passed around and they become insulated from all criticism and resistant to any correction. That hypocrisy then comes out and it spreads to infect the people under their influence. And like these crowds of thousands who are surrounding Jesus and his disciples, don't be quick to trust the crowds. Don't be quick to judge something that's popular as something that's faithful. Paul told Timothy that the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith paying attention to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons and it comes through the hypocrisy of liars whose consciences are seared. So don't trust them out of hand. Think biblically. Watch out for them, be on your guard because they might be carrying with them an infectious spiritual disease which doesn't come by contact, but it comes by listening, watching. It's the sin of hypocrisy. To avoid becoming infected. Here's how you inoculate yourself against hypocrisy, or if you spot signs and symptoms of hypocrisy in your own life, in your own ministry, here's how to eradicate it from your soul. First, in verses two to three, recognize God will expose what's hidden. He will reveal what's hidden. He will do it. Be sure your sin will find you out. Second, in verses four and five, recognize that God will punish sinners for their sins, which includes the sin of hypocrisy. Maybe you can consider this portion of our, this sermon as preventive medicine. Maybe, if you prefer, it's a powerful vaccine, no booster needed. Here's the first prevention against hypocrisy. Realize God will expose what's hidden. You can guarantee it, God will expose what's hidden. Let that thought settle in. Let it promote the fear of God in you. Verses two to three, there's nothing covered that won't be uncovered. There's nothing hidden that won't be made known. Therefore, what you've said in the dark, it will be heard in the light. What you've whispered in an ear in private rooms will be proclaimed in the housetops. I started this session pointing out how, many, how over the past number of years, God's revealed the truth about many evangelical leaders and their ministries Responses to the pandemic revealed the truth about many pastors, about many churches. The Lord really does have many, many ways, even now, before the day of the great judgment, he has ways of exposing hypocrisy. As an example, perhaps some of you have listened to the podcast put out by Christianity Today called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, which is kind of like a post-mortem on the church Mark Driscoll built and then subsequently destroyed. The podcast... I think you'll find also serves as a cautionary tale for those who pretend to be doing Christian ministry, who claim to be reformed, claim to be on the right side, but don't fear God. They don't fear God. Many things were said in the dark in that organization. They're now being podcasted and broadcasted here in the light. Many things spoken in private rooms and they're now the subject of a very public podcast. Think about this in the age of surveillance technology with citizens who are volunteering their personal data to collection devices like Alexa, trusting these beneficent corporations with all their very private information. They hope to keep it all private. 
But those things can be trotted out at any time, can't they? There will come a time of very thorough revelation. The great apocalypsis at the great white throne when all unbelievers will be raised from the dead and they will stand before the ancient of days to give an account, to give an answer. Daniel 7 describes the judge as he takes his seat, as he's served by thousands upon thousands and he's surrounded by 10,000s times 10,000. And he who sits on the throne is a terrifyingly holy. His eyes pierce, his hair is white as snow, signifying his honorability, respect, his dignity, his hair pure like wool. His throne is fiery flames. Pictures complete in Revelation 20, verse 12. I also saw the dead, the great, the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. That is what Jesus is warning about. Ultimate exposure, and at a time when it matters most, none of us want to be part of that resurrection. The resurrection of the unrighteous with all of our wicked thoughts exposed, all of our words, wicked words proclaimed in public in that courtroom, all of our deeds revealed. Meditating on that is preventative medicine to promote the fear of God. And praise God for those of us who know him, who will not be a part of that resurrection, but will be part of the resurrection of the righteous. Because our deeds, thoughts, words, deeds, behaviors, all those sins have been paid for by Christ's death for us on the cross. The reason we put our faith and trust in him is because God has regenerated us to new life. He's given us him to look at as our hope, as our salvation. And those who have new life from God look to Christ. They see his all-sufficient, perfect atonement, and they trust him, and they worship him. And the proof of that new life is that they, ch- they are walking in obedience. They walk according to the script, according to the book. They join the church triumphant, and they march forward. Praise God, if that's you. Second prevention against hypocrisy. Realize that not only will not only will everything be exposed for the ungodly, but God will punish sinners for all their sins. Again, let that thought settle in as well. Let it promote in you the fear of God. Verses four and five, and I say to you, I love how Jesus says this, I say to you, my friends, my friends, listen. Don't fear those who can kill the body and after that can do nothing more. Don't be afraid of little tiny men even if they strap on big swords, even if they write bills and amend their laws, even if they have the power to throw you in prison, even if they have the power to take your life, don't fear them. Those who kill the body after that, they can do nothing more. I'd show you the one who to fear. You wanna know who to be afraid of? Fear him who has authority to throw people into hell after they've died. Like once you're dead, then he goes to work on you. Yeah, I'd say to you, this is the one to fear. The term hell, we understand this, it's an eschatological term. It technically points to the final state of incarceration of all unbelievers. 
Jesus revealed that to John in, John, in uh, Revelation 20, verse 13. Then the sea gave up its dead. Death and Hades gave up their dead, and all were judged according to their works. Hades, a Greek term, Sheol is the Hebrew term. That is county jail in the afterlife. That's awaiting trial in the court. That's where disembodied, unbelieving souls await judgment, and yes, that's a time of torment too. Their judgment, their sentencing, their execution of sentence will be then in hell. The lake of fire, verse 14 in Revelation 20, death and Hades thrown into the lake of fires. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Anyone not found written in the book of life was thrown into that lake of fire, that's hell. So when Jesus says, fear him who has authority to throw people into hell after death, he's talking about the final destination of all the ungodly, shared by the devil, shared by the antichrist, shared by the false prophet, who is another hypocritical religious leader. He's the leader, he's the head of all hypocritical religious leaders. But when Jesus speaks here for imagery, he uses the term Gehenna. He's pointing to the Valley of Hinnom, which there in the presence in the company of Jerusalem, they can see it's a place. Historically, it was the place of vile idolatry, parents who offered their child, children in sacrifice to Molech, burning them in the fire while they shrieked. Those children shrieked in terror and pain and died. In Jesus' day, the place had become a garbage dump. One of the most vivid descriptions of this place, Gehenna, is by Edwin Black that I found. This is what he says, everywhere you see scorches and smolder from trash and trash fires. Rivulets of urine tra- trickle down from open sewers at the cliffs above, watering thorn bushes, weeds, and unexpe- unexpected clumps of grass among the outcroppings. You smell the stench of decaying offal, the congealed stink of putrefied garbage and the abs- absorbed reek of incinerated substances seared into the rock face. Crows circle low, worms and maggots slither throughout. It's a picture that came to mind for Jesus' audience. No one wanted to go there. That's where hypocrites go. Hypocrisy, again, is a covering sin for deeper sins on the heart. That's where hypocrites go. So whatever fires we need to endure in this life for Christ, for his sake, let's do that, right? Let them strike the match. Any slander we suffer, any criticism, any deplatforming, any canceling, all worth it to avoid any of that. Let's spend time in jail for not bowing to tyrants or prison or any other fate because you know what, they can't touch our souls. Nothing man can do to us compares with the sentence that God will pass on all hypocrites and all liars, all the cowardly and all the unbelieving, all the sexually immoral and those who virtue signal as allies and are celebratory friends of those people. The fear of God is preventative medicine, folks, so let's take it. Let's keep on taking it. Let's keep on reinforcing we will fear God. God alone. Second point to make if you're taking notes, number two, fear God to live fearlessly. Fear God to live fearlessly. For the rest of what Jesus says through verse 12, here's the the big idea, which sort of connects and summarizes the entire passage. Here's the big idea. If you don't fear God, 
you will succumb to hypocrisy. If you don't fear God, you will be a hypocrite because you are bound to the fear of man. If you don't fear God, you will fear everything else. On the other hand, if you do fear God, you will fear nothing else. The militant church is a fearless church because it fears God and God alone. In these next several verses, Luke 12, Jesus gives us here three benefits of fearing God, each one of them involved in communion with one of the three persons of the Trinity. You see the Father in verses six to seven, the Son in verses eight to nine, and the Spirit in verses 10 to 12. Communion with the triune God when we live in the fear of God. Reminds me of something I read from Herman Bavink, what he says about communing with the triune God. He said this, the Christian mind remains unsatisfied until all existence is referred back to the triune God and until the confession of God's Trinity functions at the center of our thought and life. End quote. Another way to say that is that the farther your functional theology is away from your confessional theology, the greater concern about your spiritual condition. You may be able to post a good doctrinal statement on your website, but what do people see after they've been to your church for a few months? You may talk a good game because you've listened to a lot of podcasts, but how do you actually live your life? That's the idea. There are many leaders, many institutions that confess a good game, but they so nuance everything that they eviscerate that confession in how they live and how they teach others to live. As Bavink says, our mind remains unsatisfied, and I'll add this, our duty remains unfulfilled until all existence is referred back to the triune God that is, our existence now under our current conditions living in this place in 2022 and until the confession of God's Trinity functions at the center of our thought and life. Our confession must produce obedience. John Owen says it this way. He says our communion with God consists in his communication of himself to us. With our return to him of that which he requires and accepts, flowing from that union which in Jesus Christ we have with him. In other words, when God blesses us as he has so richly blessed us in our time and all the clear theology that we've been given as a gift when God blesses us with such gifts of theology, he expects us to use it. He expects us to practice it. He expects us to live by it. It's no longer at that point just knowledge, things we know, things we can recite. Now it becomes wisdom, knowledge righteously applied. So by communing with the triune God, 
by receiving the ministry of each person of the Trinity. This is how we fight the good fight. This is how we militate. This is how we fight our war in godly wisdom. This is what defines Christian militancy. It starts with the fear of God and it results in faithfulness through communion with the God we fear. First benefit, this is verses six and seven. When you fear God, you're safe under the Father's care. When you fear God, you are safe under the Father's care. Jesus says, aren't five sparrows sold for two pennies and yet not one of them is forgotten in God's sight? Indeed, the hairs of your head are all counted. Jesus starts here with an illustration from the marketplace to show the level of detail in God's concern for those who fear him. Verse six, he says, aren't five sparrows sold for two pennies? Why would you buy sparrows? Well, these tiny little birds were caught, skinned, uh, caught, killed, skinned, roasted, and then eaten as a snack. You put them enough of them together, it's not a bad little meal. That's how it was back then. If you're judging them, think about your chicken nuggets, chicken tenders. They were just grabbing a few boxes of sparrow nuggets at the drive-thru, dipping them in ranch, wonderful little meal. And the point is, just like you thoughtlessly eat your chicken nuggets without regard for that little life that you've harmed, to be fair, the chicken is a far larger bird than a little tiny sparrow. Just saying, we've become more brutal, haven't we? No one in this crowd regarded the life of that little sparrow. Purchased for pennies, quickly popped in the mouth and eaten and quickly forgotten. Not, for, not forgotten by God. Creatures we consider small and insignificant, even those, God sees them, God cares for them, God feeds them. Same point in verse seven, but he takes it one step farther, not just the creatures, but the most small and insignificant parts of creatures. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all counted. Between 90,000 and 150,000 hairs on each human head, not one of them is missed in God's count. God is so detailed in his care. The Father is limitless in his knowledge. He, he is immediate in what he knows with his attentive care. He gives perfect provision. And for the omnipotent God the Father, it is an effortless thing for him to defend us and to protect us and to thwart all of our enemies. The one who is so detailed in his attention, keeping track of small, seemingly insignificant things, tiny little birds, tiny little hares. Do we have any reason to be fear, fearful, to be anxious? No way. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all the concerns of this life will be taken care of. So what if we do lose our jobs for the sake of God and his righteousness? Can't the God who feeds the sparrows provide for our needs? What if we do go to jail or if we're sentenced to prison? We don't need to join some prison gang to take care of ourselves in there. God will deploy his angels to protect us. He'll grant us favor with our jailers. He'll give us a new ministry, a jail ministry. Should the arch enemy of our souls, the devil himself, come against us, we will not fear because we're under God's protection, his fatherly protection. One time, I love this, Jesus pulled Peter aside one time, said, hey, hey Simon, Simon, hey, come here, watch out. Satan's asked to sift you like wheat. I imagine they're a pregnant pause as Jesus lets that point just kind of settle in. 
for Peter, lets the hairs on the back of his neck stand up. He says, ah, but don't worry. I prayed for you. You're good. I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Oh, you're gonna blow it, Peter, but your faith won't fail. And when you've turned back, when you've repented, go strengthen your brothers. Even puts our failures into the right perspective, doesn't it? God the Father is watching over us. So end of verse seven, don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. What a relief. And perhaps you're thinking, okay, I think I heard it over there, but how many sparrows am I worth? Where do I rate on the sparrow scale? It's an irrelevant question, isn't it? It's a moot point. Our Father couldn't care more for us or less for us, for that matter, because His care is infinite and He is an unchanging God. So when you fear God, you're safe under the Father's care, which frees you up, doesn't it? To, for the next set of verses, frees you up to stand boldly for Christ. Verse 8. And I say to you, anyone who acknowledges or confesses me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge or confess him before the angels of God, but whoever denies me before men will also be denied before the angels of God. That just clarified the significance of all of our trials, didn't it? All our tests, all our trials, all our afflictions, persecutions, they all bear significance for that day the day when Jesus bears witness to the truth about us. Everything's important. Different kinds of trials, courts, and judgments we face as unbelievers. There's the court of public opinion that enforces social penalties upon us. We're no longer invited to things. We're whispered about. There are the courts with actual legal jurisdiction enforcing legal penalties, whether civil or criminal penalties. We have ours. The first century church had theirs. For Jesus' disciples, they're thinking about verse 11, the synagogues, which is the local community. They're thinking about the rulers and the authorities, which will refer to the legal courts, whether presided over by Jewish rulers, the Sanhedrin, or Roman governors. Whatever the trial, whatever the court, this is where confessing and denying Jesus Christ, Son of God, Son of Man, Lord of Heaven, Lord of Earth, and Lord of State, County, City where you live, this is where it matters. These are places where courage counts. Will you confess your allegiance to him by obeying him above all others, or will you not? Strengthen your resolve to stand with him on that day. Jesus wants you to picture something in your mind's eye. Picture him confessing you before God's angels. When the time comes, imagine the scene. The Son of Man is there standing up to judge, and the bailiff calls a name, calls your name, Surrounding the courtroom are all God's angels and they're awaiting the verdict. Why, because they're curious? No, they're ready to execute judgment. Son of God created these angels, each one. He knows each one by name. He remembers their deeds. He knows the roles that he appointed them for and used them for in redemptive history. There is the cherubim who guarded the way to the tree of life. There are the angels who walked with him to Sodom and Gomorrah, the ones who deployed the ones he deployed in judging Egypt. There, the mighty angel who struck down 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night. There's Michael, the one who contended with the devil over the body of Moses. There's Gabriel, the one who battled a demon horde of Persia. 
There they are, and they're listening, and they're awaiting the verdict of the Lord, ready to do his bidding and execute his justice. When you hear your name called, will you be welcomed by the angel, patted on the back, welcomed in, or will you be arrested and executed by the angels? If we are loyal to him now, especially in these days, we're confident about what he'll say then. One day, we look forward to our Lord saying, that one, he's mine. That one. He stood for me. Let me tell you about his deeds. He felt the rejection for my name's sake. He endured the hostility for my name's sake. He went to prison for me. Every God-fearer who endures the scorn, the abuse, the hostility for Christ, everyone who gets deplatformed or marginalized or fired or jailed or killed for the sake of Christ, everyone, take courage. God is pleased with you. Stand up, stand strong, stay courageous, and confess Jesus Christ. When you fear God, you're safe under the Father's care. You're ready to confess Jesus Christ and by the Spirit, you're gonna speak truth with boldness. Look at verses 10 to 12. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. There's a lot there. I don't have time for a full explanation, just 45 minutes in this session. I don't know if I mentioned that, but let me just say this, that no true believer can commit that sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Moving on, look at verse 11. Whenever they bring you before the synagogues and rulers and authorities, don't worry about how you should defend yourselves or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that very hour what must be said. Man, what an assurance. Whatever court they drag you into, don't stress out about your apologetic, that's the word that's used there, apologeomide. You don't need to think about your presuppositional Bona fides there. You don't need to think about all that teaching to make the good confession. The Holy Spirit who's emboldened you to confess Christ, well, he is the reason that you're there dragged before the courts in the first place. The Spirit who dragged you there, brought you there, the Spirit who drove Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil and tested by him, the Spirit who puts you before magistrates, if he did that, will he not support you then too? Will he not strengthen you then too? Will he not give you the words to say? Indeed he will. Beloved, we're living in trying times, aren't we? We here in our country, many places in our country still have not the same level of persecution that many brothers and sisters have endured throughout the world. Christians who've been killed for the sake of Christ, hunted down like dogs and killed for the sake of Christ. We haven't even, many of us, gone to jail. Maybe we've been talked about, lied about, misrepresented, slandered. Maybe we've even been not promoted. Some people let go. Harder times are coming. Praise God that we get this text at this time, in this conference at this time, to teach us what militancy is all about. You think warfare is easy? We are soldiers enlisted into the ranks of the heavenly army. We're gonna march ahead. When we march ahead, we're gonna march in the fear 
of God. So, beloved, fear God. The Father watches over you. Fear God, the Son will confess you. Fear God, the Spirit will teach you. That's our privilege. Because through all of that, we commune with the triune God such that our confession of God, the triune God, becomes the functional center of our thought and life. And our minds and our souls are at rest. Let's pray. Our Father, we give you thanks because you are the sovereign God and you sent your beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to take on flesh to live this perfect life, to die the sufficient atoning death that we who trust in him by your grace, because of your spirit, we may be saved. The death he died, he died for our sins once for all and the life he lived, lives, he lives to you and we are counted righteous in Christ because his righteousness is imputed to us. We're covered with righteousness like a garment, we stand before you, spotless, perfect, with no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Let us fear you now and always, and let us love you, worship you in obedience and in truth. We give thanks to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, by the Spirit of our God, amen.